So the disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to them in parables? He replied, To you it has been granted to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but not to them. For those who have will be given more, till they have enough and to spare. And those who have not will forfeit even what they have. That is why I speak to them in parables, for they look without seeing and listen without hearing or understanding. The prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled in them. You may listen and listen, but you will never understand. You may look and look, but you will never see. For this people's mind has become dull. They have stopped their ears and shut their eyes. Otherwise their eyes might see, their ears hear, and their mind understand. And then they might turn to me, and I would heal them. But happy are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. Truly I tell you, many prophets and saints longed to see what you now see, yet never saw it, to hear what you hear, yet never heard it. In the Zen tradition, there's a, a tradition of the koan. And the koan is a, a statement or a story or a riddle of some kind, which is used to provoke what they called the great doubt. Having a big doubt is okay. Having little doubts just eats you away. It just... Uh, makes you neurotic and insecure and depressed. So save up all your little doubts for one big doubt. And that big doubt will bring you to the precipice. We looked at the precipice yesterday. And on, as you're hanging over the precipice, hanging by one arm, uh, you will see the delicious strawberry. So the purpose of a koan is to bring the mind to this precipice of rational thought. You might say it is to stimulate, to push our overinvestment in the left hemisphere of the brain into Martha consciousness and to kick it over into the right hemisphere and to help us to recover uh, the mind of Mary, the one who listens, the one who is sitting at the feet of the Lord and stays there listening to his words. You should remember that expression, stays there. She's sitting at his feet, but she's not jumping up every two minutes and running into the kitchen to see whether the kettle has boiled. She stays there listening. This is the same way that you go into your inner room and close the door because you're going to stay there for a while. So the purpose of a koan then is, to, is not to give you an answer. I did see a book once that was called 100 Koans and Their Answers. <laughs> uh, but that's like the answer to what is the meaning of the universe and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy after... 10,000 years of all the world's computers working on this uh, problem, they finally get notification that the answer is about to come that evening. So they all gather around and wait for the answer to come out of the master computer. And the answer is, do you remember? 42. <laughs> so it doesn't help us very much. So getting the answer without doing the working out 
is very, uh, you know, unsatisfying, really. Uh, you can buy a, if you're not good at maths, you can buy the textbook with all the answers at the back, uh, but you don't know how you got to the answers. So the, the koan is not meant to uh, challenge you to get uh, the right answer, but to come to a new way of seeing, a new way of hearing, as Jesus suggests in those comments that he made about parables. And the parables rather, rather correspond in his form of teaching to the Zen Koan. And in that moment of understanding, that moment of seeing, when the penny drops and you see what it's about, maybe it comes in a dream where you see the answer to everything but you can't remember what it was when you woke up, uh, enlightenment may come but it may come in meditation for a moment. But the moment of enlightenment has to be verified in life, in interpersonal relationships. It needs to be tested on the, you know, in, in, the, in the university of life. And above all, in our relationships, and above all, in our relationship with our teacher. So, I was talking this morning about the uh, importance of our rediscovery of the kind of mind, of the kind of approach that we need to be able to make sense of the scriptures. And in our techno-cultural, digital world, the art of reading has become, of course, very um, foreshortened. We don't read very much, and even what we read, we don't really read very well. So the art of reading, Lexio Divina, is a, a, a traditional spiritual art of reading developed in the Christian monastic tradition. This is a very important way for us to recover that ability to believe again through a suspension of disbelief. It's not, in other words, coming to that sort of fundamentalist belief where you're told you have to believe this if you are to be saved, which is a ridiculous statement. You must believe. You can't force someone to believe anything. And as soon as you put pressure on people to conform, it's primarily about reinforcing the power of an institution or a group. If you don't say you believe, you will be excluded from this group and you'll be vulnerable and maybe the group will turn on you and scapegoat you or burn you at the stake. So this is, uh, you know, this is true of any totalitarian regime, whether, regime, whether it was the Spanish Inquisition or uh, the McCarthyite uh, period of uh, anti-communism you know, in the 50s. And it happens in all sorts of parishes and organizations. Maybe 15 or 20 years ago, I, when I was here in Houston, uh, time of the Iraq War, first Iraq War, and I spoke about it cautiously, keeping my handgun in my pocket. <laughs> and uh, somebody came up to me afterwards and said, whispered, thank you for saying what you said, because we're frightened to speak about it. And we can't even speak about it in our parish. Because if we said what we really thought, we would be excluded. So, this tendency is true of any, any kind of social group. 
that lacks the experience of the inner room, we might say, that uh, belief or conformity to external belief is something that is, uh, is forced and threatened. So it makes no sense, and of course it just builds up uh, resistance and rebellion. So, uh, the purpose of, the, of, of reading then is not to reinforce what you already believe. That would be a very fundamentalist approach to scripture. And it is how many fundamentalists read scripture, very selectively, of course, without interpretation, whereas the fundamentalist reading, you know, the, the law of retribution and eye for an eye in the, in the Bible, or uh, the uh, fundamentalist uh, Muslim reading the, the Quran in a selective way, to justify things that are not part of the spirit of the Quran or the Muslim tradition. Um, it's easy for us to read, cherry-pick uh, the scriptures in order to reinforce positions that we have already uh, taken up. We just want to reinforce our own prejudices or, or beliefs. But that isn't how we actually read. The purpose of reading scripture is rather, rather like the purpose of reading poetry. It is to be introduced to, an, to a truth, to an experience or perception of reality that isn't available to us in any other way. It can, it is, it can only be expressed through metaphor, through a beautiful use of language or rhythm or sound or image metaphor. So this is how we have to relearn to read. If we don't, we will not be able to read the scriptures or pass on the art of reading these great texts of wisdom to future generations. An important part of this, of course, and we'll look at this before we finish, I hope, uh, is story, how to, how to tell stories. And when we want to share ourselves with another person or a group, we usually do so by telling them who we are, where we've come from, and uh, we leave out lots, uh, but as we get to know and trust them more, we share with them more. This may take place over decades. We, we, we are, in a sense, in as much as we can communicate ourselves, we are a narrative, we are a story. Story is always changing, and we don't know what it all means until the end. There may be a twist in the end, but uh, we are a story in the process of being told and we share that telling of the story with others in order to give ourselves to them and find ourselves. So, uh, especially in the biblical tradition, the narrative, uh, the stories, the myths, the histories, and of course culminating in the story which is the story of Jesus in the New Testament, we understand the gift of God to us, God sharing himself with us through the story and the stories that we come, hopefully, to learn very early in our lives that sit there in our minds, enter into our, into our tissues, over the years, over the decades, so that these stories become second nature to us. The oblate, uh, the Benedictine oblate, the Benedictine monk, uh, reads the rule of St. Benedict every day. 
This is a little text, and it's not actually a, a narrative, but it does, it suggests uh, the story of the person who shared this and distilled this wisdom over a lifetime. It's basically a story of how do you run a community and handle the relationships in the community and keep it focused on its ultimate aim. But it deals with things like how much wine you should drink uh, and how much uh, food and how many clothes you should have and uh, what you do with, with a brother who is being bloody-minded <coughs> and uh, how you handle yourself when you, when you go on a trip and so on. So these, and over the years, this rule uh, becomes second nature to you. And you find yourself interpreting your own experience or being helped to respond to situations in life with the help of the rule, with the wisdom of the rule, just part of your tissue and part of the way that you see the world and respond to it. Now, of course, if this, if this ideally is something you absorb, you know, with your mother's milk and from nursery onwards, if that doesn't happen, the transmission is interrupted. And that's, of course, what's happened with us culturally in Western Christian society. We are no longer transmitting that uh, story anymore. So, you know, you have a, a group of English students, college students, going with their teacher to a na national gallery and uh, asking the teacher, what is that about? Pointing at a picture with a man and a woman standing under a tree and the woman is handing an apple to the man. And uh, the student says, what does that mean? So, uh, this is where we are. So Jesus chooses to teach by parable. And he describes in, those, in that section I just read, why? And it's surprising what he says. He says it is because uh, for those whom, with whom he has immediate contact and friendship who have already put their trust in him, they get it direct. They get the teaching, the transmission directly. To you it has been granted to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but not to them. What does that sound like? What, what does that make you feel? Elitist, Elitist yes. Exclusionary. Exclus exclusivist. Uh, it, it is how we, I think, we respond to it. But is, it, 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 is, that, is that what it means? Or is he just stating a fact? It has been granted. You, you were able to get this from the horse's mouth. They don't get it. They don't understand. Jesus is a teacher who keeps teaching, although he knows that most of the people listening to him don't understand or misinterpret what he's saying. It's a very strong indication of the kind of teacher he is. He's not a teacher who wants to get good evaluation, uh, uh, evaluations from his uh, class. He's a teacher who is doing his work of teaching, knowing that most people won't get it. I think this, that's, the only, that's the only way I can understand that. And then and then he, he explores this apparent exclusivity, which is actually just the nature of the world. This is just the way it is. And clearly people did not listen to him and say, oh, you know, 100% approval rating. For those 
who have will be given more till they have enough and more to spare. And those who have not will lose even what they have. Does that sound exclusive too? But what if it were not exclusive but descriptive? So what does it describe? Well, if you, like you said before, if you put your trust in him, more will be given. Yeah. But if you're closed, that will be what you have. Yeah. And is it your fault that you are closed? Can be. It's kind of a polarization. Yes. Well, there are polarities in the world, aren't there? To those who have, those who don't have. The world is full of haves and have-nots. So, what, what uh, does it suggest? If you have and you are given more, because that is growth, that is discovery, that is going deeper into the inner room and finding more treasure in the storeroom, in the temeon of your heart. And then you find one day that you have more than you need. What then? Huh? You pass it on, yes. So this is... this. This isn't about greed or accumulation. This is about filling up so that you can overflow to others. Can you fill up? Can you fill up? Well, that's a good that's it. You fill up and then you empty out. So then, um, uh, and if you haven't, if you don't have, if you haven't, had the good fortune, let's say, of, uh, of receiving this, and there are many in the world who are miserable, because, uh, because of this, and sad, and lonely, or depressive, or suicidal, or compulsive, or addictive, because of this, for no one's fault, perhaps, then they may think they have something. If you're an alcoholic, you think you've got something fulfilling when you've got a full bottle of, in front of you. Or if you're power hungry, you may think you've got something when you achieve your ambition. But what actually happens then? when you fulfill your desire in that way, out of, an, out of, an, out of a, a negative poverty. You never have enough, yes. And if you never have enough, you've got nothing, really. Hmm? It's all it, your fault. It's all your fault, yes. <laughs> well, it certainly feels like that. It certainly creates this feeling of guilt and self-rejection. Anyway, this is just a, a way for us to try to read, to read through these, the first impressions we may have from a rather difficult passage like this. And there are many passages like this in the scriptures that we kind of turn the page on because it's not sweet and lovely. Come to me, all you who la uh, labor on a heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Well, that's nice and easy. Beautiful. But I remember once uh, <laughs> saying to a group, I think it was at a baptism, I think, uh, and I said, uh, uh, unless, you know, unless Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, one of the people, a, non, a non-believer at the, at the baptism came up to me afterwards and said, that is typical of Christianity. It is so exclusivist, <laughs> so rejecting, so you can't win. So we have to read, we have to learn to read, and the only way we learn to read, I think, is by reading with, it, with each other, by listening to each other. Every one of us here has a unique, a unique perspective on this text. And 
we enrich each other when we share how we read and understand it. And, and then again, he says, I speak to them in parables because they look but they don't see. They uh, listen but they don't hear or understand. And what a frustration that is for a teacher who wants to communicate something life-giving and enriching that he can't get through. But as I say, it doesn't mean that he gives up on them. He's just describing the fact, uh, a fact of life that we all know at some level from within ourselves anyway. So the nature of a parable, like the nature of a, of, of a koan, is really to stimulate the consciousness of the listeners and to trick or to trip the listener into the inner room, at least to some sense of the inner room, that there is this silent awareness, this silent presence, which may only be glimpsed or sensed when the mind even temporarily has been arrested in its normal rationalistic compulsive thinking and worrying when the mind has stopped for a moment, we might say. So Jesus, the teacher, knows he will be misunderstood, but he delivers the teaching in a form that has an impact on everybody who hears it, to some, who even chooses to listen to it, even for a moment. I'm always very struck when I, uh, with MBA students who are, you know, usually worshippers in the Temple of Mammon, uh, but have come to a meditation class because they know that they sense there's something more and they want to, f they're, they're looking for something and seeking something. And, um, and they find something to the degree that they enter the practice and do the practice of the daily meditation, as many of them do, most of them do, start some kind of daily practice. Whatever the belief system they have, or in most cases don't have. But at least they do the meditation. Doing the meditation opens a door for them and they discover an experience that they have not, the like of which they have not had before and they don't know how to describe it. They feel it, they know it, that it is beneficial, it's good, it's attractive, but they find it very difficult, of course, to describe it. Those who have a spiritual or religious background will feel connected back to that background uh, and begin to look at it again as a possible source of meaning. which will allow them to understand the meaning of the new experience they're having. So some will do that. They may be Hindus, they may be Muslims, they may be uh, Confucians, or they may be Christians. So Jesus delivers the teaching uh, uh, in this verbal and imaginative way, it is complementary to simply saying to people, this is how you meditate, let's do it. Now I find that with these uh, MBA students, for example, in whom this experience has begun to stir, when I read, say, selective parables, I would meet maybe the parable of the man who finds the treasure buried in a field, he buries it again, and for sheer joy goes off and sells everything he has and buys the field. Now, how many words is that? That's almost a Twitter uh, message, isn't it? <laughs> so, but that parable can keep a class of MBA students talking for an hour. 
they get into it. There is something of extraordinary power in that formulation of images and that little kind of fable-like story. And you ask them, why did he bury it again? And they will be thinking about that for days. <laughs> They're hoping there's an answer to it. <laughs> So Jesus uh, knows he will be misunderstood, but he's giving them, to, to the degree that they can understand it, the message, the, the teaching, the transmission. What is he transmitting? The word, not just words, not a, an ideology, not a philosophy, but the living word. The word of God, which is alive and active and cuts more finely than, more sharply than a double-edged sword that penetrates to the very bone and marrow of your being. And our first, our first uh, impulse, today anyway, in reading a text like any, any kind of text is, is to read it literally. As, not literarily, but literally. Uh, in a fundamentalistic way. So if we look at the story, uh, the parable of the sower, which we looked at this morning, and we'll look at again now, what is the literal meaning of the story as, as, as you might read it at first? He said, well, let's start. That same day, Jesus went out and sat by the lakeside, where so many people gathered around him, most of whom would not understand what he was saying, but where so many people gathered around him that he had to get into a boat. He sat there, and all the people stood on the shore. He told them many things in parables. He said, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some of the seed fell along the footpath, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground where it had little soil, and it sprouted quickly because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun rose, it was scorched, and as it had no root, it withered away. Some fell among thistles, and the thistles grew up and choked it. And some of the seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. If you have ears, then hear. Each of the Synoptic Gospels and also the Gospel of Thomas tell this story in the same format. Very, very memorable, important story in the transmission of the Gospel in the early church. So what does it say to you? What's your takeaway from this? You never worked on a farm, did you? 
nor did I. Well, not for long. But uh, I, d I doubt whether you'd be a very, be a very enlightened farmer who would see this, the birds coming and eating his seed <laughs> and saying, oh, that's so wonderful, it's feeding the seeds. <laughs> <laughs> but no, good, very many good points. <laughs> I feel this way. Yes? Um, the, the soul went out to soul. And as a soul, it's an unconscious <coughs> act. That's how I look at it. He didn't consciously throw the seed okay. on the soil, All right. but it fell. Okay. And each of those seeds that fell on each patches, mm. or the, either the rock, the, on the thorn, they came out with different results. Right. So there's an element of chance, randomness, unconsciousness here. Just, so, sorry, just saying that in the Gospel of Thomas, the only difference in the story, I think, is it says he went with a handful of seed and scattered the seed. Sorry. Um, I see different stages of our life. Okay. Different stages of our life. Good. I'm still asking what kind of soil. <laughs> so, what kind of soil I believe in? What kind of soil... It makes you ask, what kind of soil are you? Or what should you be? There is a, so the takeaway from this is, does it, does it make you feel, uh, well, that, what kind of soil am I? Is a little bit threatening, isn't it? Yeah, it's exclusive again, because two out of three isn't, didn't make it. Yes, okay. <laughs> Two out of three didn't make it. Well, God, well, it's going to be a smaller retreat next year. Talk. Okay. Yes. Okay. Right. So different places in each of us are represented by these these uh, outcomes in the story. Uh, rather than just different types of people. So the more literal interpretation would be, fundamentalist one, there are three types of people. Which one are you? And two-thirds of you are losers. <laughs> right? But what Tim is saying is, actually, we are, these, these are different, what, just places? When, when you say places, what do you mean by places? Different ways of being, different times, yes, different situations, okay. Judy. I looked at it as our journey into silence, mm -hmm. and as we go into that inner room, what could happen and what could not happen. So we may go into the inner room and we may not be totally silent, mm -hmm. so we don't hear the voice of God. We miss it. We miss it completely. Or we may go in, we may hear it, and then as we come out of the meditation, we rush off into our busy lives, so we don't take the message with us. Hmm. And then we may go in, get the message, receive the message, and there are times when we may be subjected to you're a meditator, you know, what nonsense is that? And we kind of like, okay, no, no, I'm not really a meditator, you know, I just do it for so You know, we sort of easily reject the message that we've gotten. And then the last piece is really taking that message and being the message that we've heard. Okay, thank you. So here is another way of reading. as meditators, we might read this in a specific way relating to our work of silence and what we are learning about the inner room and even going into the inner room, even when we're at least on the threshold of the inner room or putting our toe over into the inner room, we can still be, what Tim was saying, still be finding that these different responses may 
be activated in us uh, even as we do the same work. So, okay. Sorry. But it seems to have a happy ending. There's a super abundance <laughs> yes. of seeds and they produce even more. So the, the, I guess that's the, the kind of the blessing there that uh, all will be well. Okay, well this is important because, so it does, it, uh, apparently the idea of getting a hundredfold return on your investment of the seed is, um, you know, would have been fantastic, fabulous to the, to the audience, almost a joke, you know. It's like uh, you know, getting a hundred percent return on your investments. So uh, it's, it's slightly, you know, it's slightly over the top. Nevertheless, as you say, it has the sense of a happy ending. So the way we read this, on the one hand, it could be two-thirds are losers, and I'm probably one of those. Because, so it, in other words, it has a, uh, an unhappy ending, where it leaves us with a, a frightening feeling of failure or that we haven't made it. But another way of reading it is very different. It gives us a sense of hope. Father uh, <clears throat> isn't this similar in a way when you're teaching children, is that you, you, you explain something <coughs> and some children get it at certain points in time mm. and some don't. And then, but with scripture again, you read it over and over again. So another point, another time when that child hears that, suddenly the light comes on and it means something. Hmm. Maybe sometimes they connect that with something else. There's, there's I, think, uh, I think there was, in a lot of Jesus' stories, he did them in such a way that we, they could be understood in different ways, at different points that we are. Okay, so... Uh, Similar to the experience of teaching children, some children get it immediately, run with it, others struggle with it and don't seem to get it for a long time. We had the opportunity to read and reread, and by absorbing the story, say the, the, the parable, making it, becoming really familiar with it, so that we almost know it by heart, and that's how the early Christians would have read, by listening and memorizing, probably. Then, uh, so it really becomes, kind of, gets into your memory, the memory gets into your living tissue. So you read and reread it even in your sleep. Uh, now, what was, it? what was the last thing you said? Yes, so, so Jesus told many stories like that, but did he only tell a story? What, what is the gospel? It is a story. I mean, these are stories that he tells within the story that begins with his birth and ends with his death and then has an afterlife. And in the same way, we have to hear and rehear and listen to that story of Jesus before he begins to be meaningful to us. And uh, it takes time. It takes time, repetition, uh, uh, exposure. So. Uh, I, I love her explanation of the soil and what kind of soil am I? What kind of soil am I, yes? I thought about what you said. Um, I was thinking that, you know, as a beginning Christian, you think you can do it all. And you throw the seeds out. And unless you are willing to step back and say, okay, what do I need to enrich my soil? So that when the seeds are sent out, they're sent out. Not okay. So at first, uh, you think you can do it all. You think you've got the secret. You've got the power. You've got the, you know, <clears throat> the authorization. And what's the best way of learning? 
Huh? Wrong. <laughs> no. The best way of learning, as I said yesterday, is failure. So it's failing that pulls us up and makes us relearn and remember. Yeah. No, it's one way of uh, You had a, something? Yeah. And we decide because we work on our inner room, we decide which soil we want to be. And then uh, at the end, when the soil gives a lot of seeds, is because when you are full in your inner room, you you want to share that experience to everybody. That's why. The seed is growing inside you, and then is growing in other persons. For others. Thank you. Good. So, um, so you say that uh, there's a sense in which we choose what kind of soil we're going to be. So, again, if we play this back as in a... In a or, you know, to an audience of meditators, we might interpret this as uh, there are times and situations where we uh, we we as um, whether the, the the meditation the mantra seems say say the mantra is the seed it um, falls along the footpath and uh, the birds come and eat it up straight away so there's you know there's almost no sense of connection with the the, the process of meditation we're just too distracted uh, and the little birds come and peck away our good intention. Uh, there are other times where it, it falls on rocky ground, but we, we get a certain, it sprouts quickly, but there is no depth. And it fails, it fizzles out uh, as soon as it's under pressure. It has no root. And other times when we meditate, the, the mantra is choked by all the worries, anxieties, shopping lists and problems that we've got on our mind at that moment and we can't just lay them aside. So, in what sense do we have the ability to choose what kind of soil we have? You never stop changing the soil. Okay, so you don't stop? You just fail, and what do you do? You, what's that? What's the song? Pick yourself up, brush. What is it? Yeah, where's that from? Okay. My question is about the soil. Yes. Sure, yes, I mean, uh, there's good and bad soil. I have a little garden in Ireland, and uh, I had to bring in some soil to the front of the house where we planted some, planted some, some plants. And I was amazed when I came back how <laughs> they had grown, because I 
And, um, and of course, some, uh, my cousin said to me, well, you put in very good soil, rich soil, better than the other soil. And the rest of the soil is, is not, of the island is not, not very good for growing things on the whole. So, so soil is changeable. We think, you know, if we interpret this parable literally, you're one or the other, right? Left brain thinking, you're one or the other. And we put ourselves probably into the, into the category of the, of the failures. But the soil can be changed. What changes it? <laughs> yes, the rain and faith and digging it over and adding, adding to it. Anyway, okay, so, okay, Ruth last, had the last word, as usual. No, go on. <laughs> the parable speaks to me about the patience of God. The patience of God, okay, yes. Yes. Um, he didn't say one was better than the other. He let the thorns grow. He let the birds eat. And it, it speaks to me of God's patience with us that when the, sword, the, the seed falls on whatever ground we are, that He is there waiting and waiting and waiting. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So, so I think that's, that, that's a, this is a nice way to bring together the many rich uh, and enriching perspectives that, that you, we've shared. And we could go on for a long time, clearly. So this is the living word. We've all heard the story many times. It's been around a long time. Probably, Jesus probably adapted it from something and like Shakespeare adapted all his stories. And yet it has been transmitted to us in a mysterious way. Um, and it speaks to us here and now, where we are in ourselves, our relationship with ourselves. And it offers us, it offers us a way of understanding ourselves too, because the word reads us. The way we interpret it is going to tell us something about ourselves as we reflect upon how we interpreted it compared with how other people interpreted it. We will see something about ourselves. Why do I, why do I see this as condemning me? Why do I assume that Jesus is getting at me? Because that's the way I see myself too often. But is it how Jesus is, is, is describing it? He's simply describing reality. It's a comprehensive picture of the world from the point of view of a seed being thrown onto the ground. This is how it is. No blame, says in the, in the I Ching. Uh, very often gives an interpretation that says, no blame, just, just the way it is. So in the same way, Jesus describes the Father, God, as like the sun who shines on good and bad alike. God who has no favorites, who is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. This is the nature of God to be equally benevolent to all types and forms of response without blame or punishment. The blame or punishment comes from within ourselves. At least this is how we can interpret it. We could interpret it the other way, but which interpretation seems to us to be more life-giving? Which offers us another potential 
another way of being. What's the point in reading if it is simply going to confirm us in our negativity and our self-rejection? The point of reading it is that it should be opening our minds beyond the, 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 the closed or the relatively closed sense of self that we have achieved so far. And um, so there is a kind of, uh, there's a paradox in that interpretation, which is it has a neutrality about it. God has no favorites. The ego doesn't like that. Catholics, Episcopalians, Methodists, Presbyterians, and so on, may not like to know that God is equally uh, loving to all. Uh, there's a neutrality about it, which the ego finds very difficult to uh, understand. How can you be loved equally when you want to be loved exclusively? And the answer is to be loved uniquely. If God shines on good and bad alike, it is because God shines on the uniqueness of every thing that exists. It's the uniqueness that is our proof of connection to God. Just the fact that we exist and as everything exists in uniqueness. So on the one hand, there is this, this puzzling description of the neutrality of God, or the, almost the impersonality of God. But on the other hand, what is the outcome of this? It is universal benevolence. It is something hopeful. How do we enter into that experience of hope and receive the gift of the divine benevolence? We have to step somewhere. We have to move from where we, where we are. So, there is a great uh, discovery every time for us to make, every time we come to the scriptures, especially, I, I feel, Lexio is not only a personal, individual uh, experience, but but a collective one, it's something that we, that we benefit from more by sharing with others. Um, just in the same way that we may meditate on our own, but we also meditate with others. And one experience, meditating alone, enriches and supports the other, meditating with a community. And so that we come to see there are really two sides of the same coin, same experience, solitude and community. In the same way, we read the scripture alone, spend 10, 15 minutes a day chewing the word, taking a parable like this, sitting on our own on the train or in our chair. And other times <coughs> we are able, maybe less frequently, to share it uh, as we have done this afternoon with each other. I think we come to listen to the word more richly and transformatively the more we have entered into the inner room and silence. To listen, you have to be silent. Otherwise, you're just shouting at each other or shouting at the noise. So we have to be silent in order to listen. To be listen, to listening, to listen brings us to silence. And this is how silence makes the text revelatory, why the text reveals something, revelation. Well, I don't think revelation meant that God 
opened up a WhatsApp channel with his scribes at a certain day and transmitted uh, these texts down the line, word for word. Clearly they evolved, they grew, they were over many centuries and millennia. So there is revelation in these sacred texts. But it's not the revelation of a proposition. This is the answer. This is the only truth. But it's a revelation that happens. It actually makes something happen, alive and active. So the truths or the truths in the text hit our world, the world we live in, the world we are in at this moment, which is going to be different from the way it is in half an hour or 10 years' time. So there is an actual clash. It shouldn't be a clash. We should ideally hear a sound of an impact when we read these words and listen to them in this way. Of course, no text is perfect. They are words. We need interpretation. Interpretation is essential to opening them to us, and we've been interpreting the text. We, nobody said this is wrong, this is right. We, we can all, we, we are all right and we're all wrong. We all fall short. We're all getting there. Interpretation and a certain critical distance is necessary because they are words. And it's good, as B. Griffith said, that we don't know the actual words that Jesus spoke when he told the story, parable, for the first time. Because if we did, then we would be worshipping the words and just arguing about the words. But there are innumerable translations of this parable. This is the uh, New English Bible, which I, my favorite one, my, what I like best. So, so I think our, our ability to um, listen again to the sound of the sacred, to the holiness of the world, is a much easier work for us if we can learn again how to handle, how to read, how to be read by these sacred texts. It heals us in the process and it sends us home again. When Jesus heals many of the people that he healed, what does he say? He says, now go home and get on with your life. So, to really listen, to be touched by these texts and the mystery that they contain is to be healed. The symbols heal. Symbolic life of these texts heal us and restore us to life as it should be lived. And we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. But this is a much easier work, I think, if we bring to it the fruits of silence. Living and telling the truth in love. The truth we know is true because it emerges directly from the silence of the inner room, not from our own noise. And because the truth sets us free in every one 
of the innumerable ways in which we are human. There is no way in which we are human that is not touched and liberated by this experience of meditation or of the sacred text. And to be human is to be in relationship, in conscious relationship. That means in relationship to ourselves, we become liberated from addiction, from self-hatred, from blaming others, from compulsion. It means our relationship to other people where we become liberated in order to honor them, to see them as icons of God, however poor they may be, however useless they may be, however threatening they may be to us in cultural or economic terms. And free to treat them justly, so that we can be just. And our relationship to our environment, to the, both our social environment and our natural world, free to love and enjoy it, not to abuse it or exploit it. Free, then, ultimately, to love God as the source and the goal of everything that exists. Everything that exists comes out of being. And what Jesus tells us is that in that inner room, the Father, God, is. The being that is God is in that inner room to which we have immediate and constant access. The door is always open. <laughs>